two Lord's Days ago, I brought you a message with the title, Walking in the Daylight of Eternity, from Romans chapter 13, verses 11 to 14. If you remember, in that message, I put forth a two-point outline of this text. Number one, the indicatives, that is, the way things are, in verses 11 and the first part of verse 12, in which I gave you three of those things, that is, the things, that the way things are. The first part of verse 11, the hour has come to wake up. The latter part of verse 11, our salvation is nearer than ever before. And thirdly, the night is gone, the day is dawning in the first part of verse 12. Here are the way things are, according to Paul. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is gone, the day is at hand. Those are the way things are, according to Paul. They are the indicatives. And then, based upon that kind of foundation, he gives, secondly, and we covered a little bit of that last time, the imperatives, or the way things ought to be. The way things are and the way things ought to be. He says in the latter part of verse 12, As a result of the way things are, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Just as Paul says, there are three things that are the way things are. He gives in these imperatives three of the things that the way things ought to be. He says in the latter part of verse 12, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And last time we talked about that under that heading, the first of three, put off the habits of the old man, put on the habits of the new man. We talked about that in some detail, and that is where we left off. There are two remaining imperatives of the way things ought to be. And I want to cover those this morning in verses 13 and 14. The second of these three imperatives of the way things ought to be, if you remember, I gave you the principle like this, walk properly as daytime people, don't flirt with sin as do nighttime people. Walk properly as daytime people. Don't flirt with sin as do nighttime people.
people. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul uses the metaphor, of course, in this text of believers as those who walk in the daytime and unbelievers who walk at night. And those, of course, would be very familiar concepts for first century people to understand. Because when it was daytime at that time without electricity, people did their work. And at nighttime, they went to bed so that they could get up the next morning when light dawned to do more work. And the only things that were done at night were those who were working their works of evil. And so Paul borrows this metaphor from that first century context and he talks about the metaphor of daytime picturing a scene when true work would be done by godly people and then he contrasts that with nighttime people who would do their evil deeds, unbelievers who do their deeds of darkness in the nighttime. Remember verse 12 where Paul says the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. People who do works of darkness are depicted as those who do their evil deeds in secret. That's the idea. Hence, in verse 13, he gives us three pairs of those works of darkness. And I want to spend a little bit of time on this because I think they're important. The first pair of nighttime sins is what Paul depicts here, the works of darkness, orgies and drunkenness. Orgies and drunkenness. First of all, notice these two kinds of sins are referred to in the plural. And I suppose it is so because these are the kinds of sins which are repeatedly done and were so common in the nighttime of first century sinfulness. Paul gives three pairs of two characterizations each, and the first is orgies and drunkenness. And frankly, if this is listed in the plural here in the first century, orgies and drunkenness, not much has changed in the 21st century. Think about it. Twenty centuries of this level of sinful involvement throughout mankind's history, and it still goes on. And maybe Paul puts it in the plural here because these were the most common of the three pairs that he lists here in Romans 13. Orgies and drunkenness of all kind. We can't be sure about that, but at least the word orgies has also been translated, maybe in your Bibles, as revelries. The idea is carousing. People who do their, their nighttime of evil deeds carouse. They revel in their sensuousness. They do their work at night. And frankly, this is a Pauline list, maybe an abbreviated one, but certainly is a kind of list that Paul uses throughout his writings to refer to people who are involved in these works of darkness. In fact, look over in Galatians chapter 5 and you'll see this very same word used by Paul in the list of the works of the flesh. This is what he's talking about here, my friends, the works of the flesh. Unbelievers, non-Christians, this is what they do at night. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, 
We'll get to those in a moment. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. We'll also talk about those, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Verse 21, envy, and then those two words, drunkenness, orgies. And then Paul says, and things like these, which of course intimates that this list is not a complete one. It's a general list. And he says about this list, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he contrasts that, of course, with the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. The very word joined also, as it is here in Romans 13, And Galatians 5, to drunkenness, is that idea of an orgy. It's really what the Gentiles were doing, even as Peter said in 1 Peter 4.13, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And here is his list, living in sensuality, passions, and then these two words again, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Reminds me of when I sometimes see on the television some of the festivities that go on at Mardi Gras in New Orleans. Doesn't it you? Orgies, carousing, drinking parties, revelry. All of these things, Paul says, are what nighttime people do. And often, of course, those kinds of things like Mardi Gras are depicted At night. Now, admittedly, Paul doesn't say here drinking is a sin. Did you notice that? But he says rather drunkenness is a sin. But I think the problem in our culture, however, is that there is often very little differentiation between drinking and drunkenness. And besides, If drinking leads to drunkenness, and if there is often a very fine line between the two, why would you want to drink at all? It, of course, leads inevitably, in most cases, maybe not all, but in most cases, to that very idea of drunkenness, which Paul says is a sin. Why risk drinking in the first place? Because drinking can lead to drunkenness, and drunkenness can lead to orgies and carousing and drinking parties and revelry of all kinds. Why be involved with it at all? Why put yourself into the position of dulling your mental faculties? Why would you give yourself over to something that leads to sin? And of course, when you add to that word drunkenness, the word orgies here, komois, komas in the singular, You're talking about a lewd, immoral feasting. It's talking about people engorging themselves in a feast, no doubt with food and with revelry and with drinking and with sexual immorality. It's carousing. And as I said, I think of Mardi Gras in this. You can, of course, think of so many other things in your mind. You can think of college parties, frat parties, beach parties, All kinds of things and so much more. The bottom line is this. It is what people do in the nighttime through their evil pursuits. But what does Paul say? What does he tell us here in Romans 13? He says, let us cast off, verse 12, the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
We shouldn't be involved in those things at all. Why? Because, verse 13, we should walk properly as in the daytime. If night is characterized as the darkness of evil and their pursuits, then we ought to be those of the daytime. We ought to be those who are casting off these works of the darkness and we're putting on our armor, and in this case, the armor of light. Darkness is what characterizes the unbelievers of this world, not those who are making a claim to godliness. And so in this metaphor that Paul gives us of the daytime, hence the title of the message, Walking in the Daylight of Eternity. If you're looking at eternity, if you have eternity in view, and if you know there's a judgment seat, if you know there's an evaluation of your life, if you know that this is where you're headed, if you want to be approved by God, if you want to be pleasing to Him, if you want the things that make for godliness and holiness of light, of life, look in the light, look in the daylight of eternity. And as you see the daylight of eternity, you see that it is works of holiness and godliness and therefore walk in that light. That's what he's saying. And notice here there's a second pair of nighttime sins, sexual immorality and sensuality. This is, of course, always to be assumed. It's almost always assumed in Paul's lists of vices that this would appear, sexual immorality and sensuality. Koi teis kai asel geis. The idea of sexual immorality and sensuality. Referring, of course, to those who are committing acts of sexual sin, misdeeds, sexual intercourse of a deviant nature, of a, an unbiblical nature, outside of Marriage. These are the kinds of words which depict having to do with things that are consistent with sexual misconduct. Always, as I said, coming up in these New Testament lists of sins. The first word speaks of the act of intercourse itself, and the second refers to licentious behavior sexually. Sexually sinful behavior of many different kinds. And Paul wraps it all up in this word sensuality. And he says to his first century readers now, this is a sensate culture. This is a culture that uses its senses in the sensual area to pursue their works of darkness. And he says, don't walk that way. Cast off those works of darkness. They may have been those things that used to characterize you, but cast them off. Put them away from you like a coat that's dirty and doesn't fit anymore. Cast it off from you. And walk in the daylight of eternity. This is an interesting list that Paul gives here, as he gives in so many other places. And I think probably all of the apostles, all of the Bible writers, taking their cue from Jesus himself. Look back at Mark chapter 7, at Jesus' own list. If you're not satisfied with the apostles or other Bible writers, those closely associated with the apostles, how about Jesus himself? Mark 7:14 and he called the people to him again and said to them hear me all of you and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him but the things that come out of a person are what defile him in other words it's the stuff that's already inside that defiles him it's not the 
things that are outside a person that go into him. It's the stuff already inside that come out of him. Verse 17, And when he'd entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. In other words, it's not the stuff that you eat or don't eat that makes you holy. That's just the stuff that doesn't go into your heart. It goes into your stomach and is expelled biologically. He says, rather, verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. And then here's Jesus' list, verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, notice, not out of his stomach, but out of his heart, speaking spiritually now, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, there's a word that Paul can use, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, there's the very word that we're referring to in Romans 13, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Look at Paul's list in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And he uses almost some of the very same language with the Corinthians that he does to the Romans in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 20, for I fear that perhaps when I may come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, two words we'll look at in a moment, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, our word, and sensuality, our word, that they have practiced. And I read Galatians chapter 5 the works of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh, against or over against the deeds of the Spirit. And Paul says the same thing there. It's the sins which characterize the people of the night. They aren't characterizing people of the daytime. If you're a person of light, that is, you've come to faith in Christ, you're walking in the light as He is in the light, you don't want to be characterized by those deeds, and indeed you cannot. Because you're walking in the light, and the light is exposing those deeds, even of your inmost heart. And you want to respond to those things by saying no to them. And you fight against them, and you want to mortify them, and you want to kill them. Why? Because they don't characterize you as a person who's walking in the daylight of eternity. Those are the things that characterize people of the darkness. And the two can't coexist. You can't be living in both of them at the same time. There's a line of demarcation. And Paul is saying very clearly here, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. We don't walk that way. Why? Because it isn't proper. Let us walk properly. As in the daytime. If you're going to do your work during the day, you do the work that speaks of godliness and holiness and virtue and not vice 
and deeds of evil, those are not to characterize you. You're walking in the daylight of eternity. You're seeing eternity in view. You're looking at the day in which Jesus Christ will come in the Bema seat of judgment and He's going to evaluate all of the works of your life. And when you stand before Him, you want to stand before Him as though you're a person of the daytime. You're casting off the works of darkness and you're walking in the daylight of eternity so that He might be pleased with your life, that He might give you reward that He might help you, that He might give you all that you need to respond rightly to the Lord Jesus Christ because He's your King, He's your Lord, He's your Master. He's the Sovereign of your life. He commands you what to do. He tells you the right things. He commands you to stay away from the wrong things. You look at a list like Jesus gave in Mark 7 and you say, well, if Jesus says those are the things that defile a man, then I don't want to be defiled. I don't want to have that list characterize me anymore because Jesus is my Lord and my Master. I want to walk in the light as He is in the light. And then Paul gives a third pair of nighttime sins here, quarreling and jealousy. And it's interesting that he moves from what we might say are the bodily sins, the bodily sins, the orgies, the drunkenness, the sexual immorality, the sensuality, and then he goes in with this pair of sins to the sins of the speech or of words. And he lists here in verse 13 things that break apart the community with the tongue. And so whether we're talking about bodily sins, which of course are always engineered by the mind, or we're talking about word sins, speech sins, sins of the tongue, which are also engineered by the mind. And he says, quarreling, or as some translations may have the word strife. It's related to the idea of having an altercation, having a contentious disposition. You're contending with people. This is supposed to be a community of light. This is supposed to shed light on all of the things that we are to do righteously, both behaviorally and with our words. And Paul is telling us, don't have those things which characterize the workers of darkness. And what are those? They quarrel. They have strife. They don't live to speak to each other in words that edify and build up. They have words which tear down, which maim. He says, don't be involved in such things. By the way, look back at Romans chapter 1, and you'll see that this very idea of quarreling is listed there in the list of sins that will bring on God's righteous fury. Notice those who do not know God, they don't honor Him as God, they claim to be wise, they're actual fools in reality. Verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. There it is again, bodies like we've seen in our own text, Romans 13. And in verse 28, they do not see fit to acknowledge God, and God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And here's what they're filled with, verse 29, they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, here's our word, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they're gossips, 
slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That word strife is listed there. Quarreling. And then he adds this idea of jealousy. Jealousy. If someone can't get at you by their constant bickering, their infighting, which destroys a community of people, and if that can't do it, then there's a second word that he employs here in this third and final pair, and that is jealousy. It's an interesting word. It's actually the Greek word used in other contexts positively to refer to someone who is zealous, negatively referring to someone who is jealous. could be a good thing if someone is zealous for good deeds, zealous to prove themselves faithful, zealous in good works, but in the negative sense, someone who is using it in a very negative connotation, they're jealous. Or maybe even the word is translated in your Bibles as malice. Refers to someone who's envious of you, possibly, and may attempt to covet what you have, what you possess. And maybe they'll attempt to destroy you with their words of malice because they want what you possess. Paul knew what it was to have jealous people enraged at him. Listen to Acts 13.45. When the Jews saw the crowds... They saw how Paul was ministering to the crowds and the crowds were growing and the crowds were listening to his message. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And the other apostles knew that too, for in Acts chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Scripture says, But the high priest rose up, And all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, there's our same word, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. You see, all of that for the sake of the inward motive of jealousy. It's a hideous sin. It's the kind of sin that will move people even into this kind of action where where they will throw good men into prison. So enraged as they are with jealousy. They're zealous, all right, but they're zealous not for the truth, but for evil, for their own ideas, for their own championing of truth as they perceive it. They don't like Paul's words. They don't like the apostolic teaching. And so they become enraged at Paul and the other apostles, and they attempt to subdue them. And all of these words, beloved, as Paul lists them here in verse 13 have found their way, as I said, into other lists used to describe the works of darkness. It's the kind of list that when you read it, you say, I don't want to have any part of that. As a Christian, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be involved in this. I want to run the other way. I don't want to be involved in orgies and drunkenness and in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. I don't want to be involved in any of that at all. And you say, as I assume all of you as professing Christians would say, how do I stay away from that? How do I get away from that in my life? How do I say no to those things? Maybe I did have 
in my former life, my life without Christ. Maybe I had those kinds of works of darkness in my life. Maybe I was characterized by those things. Maybe you were living enough of your life as an adult away from Christ that you saw these things, you lived in them, you were you were obsessed with these ideas, you were involved in these works of darkness. How do I now as a Christian say no to those things? They're, they seem always to nip at my heels. How can I say no to these kinds of sins? Well, thirdly and lastly, look at verse 14. Paul says, in effect, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for your flesh. Notice how he says it. Verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. The full name. Maybe not so much a name as it were, as is his title. The Lord, the great name, the sovereign name, the Lord, Jesus, His Hebrew name, Yeshua, Christ, His Greek name referring to Messiah, the Master, Jesus, the Messiah. Put Him on and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. There's the alternative. There's how you can cast off the works of darkness. This is how you can put on the armor of light. It is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I admit to you that is a strange phrase. How do you put on a person? What does it mean to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I'm going to talk very practically next Lord's Day when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to come up with ways in which I think we can put on the Lord Jesus Christ most appropriately. But for this morning and for this hour, I want us to to concentrate our minds on the idea that to put on the Lord Jesus Christ means to think both positionally and practically a putting on of all of the character virtues of Christ, of all of the qualities of Christ, of all that is bound up in the person of Christ. I think that's what Paul means here when he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We have joked before about the phrase, what would Jesus do? Maybe it's true that we would say not only what would Jesus do, but who is Jesus? And would we say, I want to be like Him? Well, if you're a follower of Christ, you want to put Him on. You want to put on His character. You want to put on His qualities. You want to put on His virtues. You want to dress yourself with Christ. You want to put Him on like the new coat of what it means to walk in the daylight of eternity. I want to take us back a little bit because, as I said, I want to talk about a little bit of the positional aspect of that and then the practical. The practical, I want to say a little bit about this morning and a whole lot about next time, but the positional aspect I want you to see. Turn back in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. All of this, of course, contained either in the book of Romans or with Pauline literature, as we'll see from Ephesians and Colossians and Galatians. This is what I think Paul is referring to here when he's talking about putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul sets up two heads of the human race. One Adam, one Christ. There are only two heads of the race. That's all there ever has been and ever will be. Two heads of the race, Adam and Christ. Notice Romans 5, 12. Therefore... 
just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The one man referred to there in verse 12 is Adam. It's very clear. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, verse 14, and then the law came in, and then the law was a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. And therefore, we needed Christ to save us from the head of the human race, Adam, who plunged the whole human race into sin. And who was that one man? Verse 15, For if many died through one man's trespass, Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. You can't get away from the language that Paul is saying here, two heads of the race, Adam being one, Christ being the other. There is sin and degradation and death through Adam, and there is a free gift, there is grace, and there is salvation in one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, Adam's, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The language is unmistakable. It's as though Paul would be this rabbinic teacher and he puts... On the screen behind him, on the board behind him, this idea, two columns, Adam here, Christ here. Here are all the ideas of what it means to be in Adam. And he talks about death, and he talks about sin, and he talks about condemnation. And then he puts Christ at the head of the other column, and he says, here is the free gift, here is grace, here is salvation, here is justification. And he says, one man, one man, one man, one man, one man, one man. And he's speaking about Adam and Christ. Now, chapter 6. He says, verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? And he uses a metaphor there of being immersed, being dipped into something. And here it is being dipped or immersed into the very death of Christ. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So, he uses this metaphor of baptism. It is a death It is a burial. It is a resurrection to walk in newness of life. And we're baptized into Christ. He's our new head of the race. We've been baptized into His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And we're going to be resurrected just like He is. Therefore, verse 6, we know that our old man, man, that's the word, was crucified, past tense. In order that, for the purpose that, the body of sin, our sinful life, all the, all the things that characterized us in Adam might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be what? Enslaved 
to sin. You see what the death of Christ means for us? In order that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. It no longer has its reign, R-E-I-G-N, its reign on us. It no longer reigns over us. It no longer empowers us to do its evil and wickedness, and certainly at night. It no longer forces us to ever and always do what we want it to do. We've been freed from it. Oh, I love verse 7. For one who has died, that has been buried in baptism with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life, has been set free from sin, the power of sin, the penalty of sin, and ultimately one day even the very presence of sin. This is monumental teaching. This is tremendous truth. And what that means for us is that when we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, when we are clothed with Him, it's that very same language. We've been buried with Him. We are to be raised with Him. Maybe even the sense of the baptismal clothes that they used in the first century, I've put on Christ. I'm buried and I'm raised to walk in newness of life. I've put on Christ. You say, is there any language in the New Testament that speaks of this very thing? Yes, look at Galatians chapter 3. If you want to see some explicit language now, not using the metaphor necessarily of baptism, but of putting on Christ like this clothing metaphor. Here it is, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.26, you are all sons of God through faith. That is your entry point through the instrumentality of faith. It's not faith in faith, it's faith in Christ Jesus, he says. Verse 27, marvelous words, For as many of you as were baptized, same terminology as Romans 6, into Christ Jesus have what? Put on Christ. See it? If you've been baptized into Christ Jesus, if you've been saved, if you've been born again, all of that salvation language, you've been baptized into Christ, buried with Him. You'll, you'll ultimately see a resurrection like His because He was resurrected from the dead. If all of that is true about you, you've been baptized in that way, then Paul told the Galatians, you've put on Christ, like putting on a new suit. By the way, this is a new suit. I wore it especially so I could use this very metaphor. I put on a new suit. I put on Christ. And if you're believing in Christ, you put on Christ. And if you put on Christ, it's like wearing a new suit. The whole world just seems better and better. You put on Christ. Now you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. All right, if all of this is true, and if Paul is telling me here in Romans 13, sort of wrapping up all of chapter 12 and all of chapter 13, and this is the last word he's going to say on this subject, as I said last time, bookends, Romans 12, 1, Romans 13, 14, compressing it all together. If this is true, and if I've put on Christ, then why in Romans 13 
is this an imperative, put on the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't understand that. If I've already put on Christ, then how is it that I'm to put on Christ? doesn't make any sense. If I'm already told in Romans 6 that the old man has been crucified, past tense, then how is it that I'm to put on Christ in some kind of imperatival sense? How come I'm commanded to put Him on when, I'm, when I've already put Him on? Is Paul inconsistent with himself? Is he sort of saying something with a double jeopardy? What, what's going on here when he's talking about the idea in Romans 6 that you have seen the old man crucified, past tense, and yet he says here in chapter 13, put him on. I, I thought we put him on. I thought Galatians 3, 26 and 27 says, you've put on Christ as though it were a past tense reality. What's going on there? Here's the idea. Here it is. It is true of you positionally, it's true of you in the state of your being, in the status of your life, and it also must work its way out practically in your life. That's what he means. It's true of me in terms of the indicative, this is the way things are, you're in Christ, you've been buried, you're going to be raised again because he was raised again, it's going to happen. But now, between the already and the not yet, you have to work this out in the practicalities of your life so that you are, in fact, in practice, casting off the works of darkness so that you could put on the armor of light so that you would not be involved in those kinds of sins as a characteristic aspect of your former life, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in the idea of quarreling and jealousy. No, you are walking properly as in the daytime, and now you got to walk in those new clothes as though those clothes fit who you really are. And you will. And you will, but you're also commanded to do it. You say, well, if, if, if I'm going to be that way, then I'll just sort of sit back and allow the process to unfold. Can't do that. There's no idea of you just sort of let go and let God. That's not what this passage is saying. There's no idea that you just sit tight, you just let God do all the work. If that were true, these commands would be meaningless. They're saying, do it. Imperatives, commands, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I do it? Practically, every day of your life, this is what you do. Ephesians chapter 4. This is how you do it. This is, this is what Paul tells us. If the position verses are Galatians 3.27, Romans 6, Romans 13, if, if those are the position ideas, Romans 13 being the practice out of the indicative, then here's chapter 4, verse 24, and put on the new man. It's an infinitive with imperatival force. Put on the new man created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, therefore having put away falsehood. You see, verse 22, put off the old man which belongs to your former manner of life. You see, that's what you're doing. You're, you're the new man in Christ, under Christ as the head of the race, and all of the rest of your life submitting to the Lord of that 
race, Jesus himself, and you submit to him by putting off all of the things that used to characterize you, your former manner of life. And verse 23, you're renewed in the spirit of your minds. And you're putting on the characteristics of the new man in true righteousness and holiness. And then he gives a list of what those things are. Falsehood, speaking truth. Not being angry, deal with your anger. Not giving opportunity to the devil. Not stealing, but rather doing honest work. Not having corrupting talk that used to characterize you, but now only that speech which is good for building up. Not grieving the Holy Spirit, but letting all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put off from you, along with all malice. And putting on kindness toward one another and tenderheartedness and forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's the practicality. That's what we're doing. That's what the Christian life is all about. You are putting into practice the very thing that is positionally true of you, or as someone said, so well put, becoming what you are. Becoming what you are. Are you becoming what you are? Look at Colossians chapter 3. This is, this is how you are to Become what you are. This is so good. This is what we could close with this morning. Here's the passage. Verse 1, Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, you see that Romans 6 language? You've been raised with Christ. You're going to be resurrected with Him because He was resurrected. If you've been raised with Christ, that's true of you. Seek the things that are above. The heavenly things, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above. Heavenly things, godly things, not on things that are on earth. Earthly things, wicked things, demonic things, dark things. For you have died. That's our indicative. This is the way things are. For you have died. And it's indicative of you that your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, here's another indicative, then you also will appear with Him in glory. This is the way things are. Therefore, here are the way things ought to be. Verse 5, put to death, same idea, put away, put off, kill, mortify, slay. Therefore, what is earthly in you? It's a great way of saying something like this. Put away, put off, slay. Uh, kill, mortify, slay what remains as sinful in you. Whatever your heavenly pursuits, where Christ is seated there, let your minds dwell on those things, and whatever remains sinfully in you, whatever is earthly in you, kill it. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, And why should I do that? Because on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. I don't want wrath. I don't want wrath. Wrath comes on unbelievers. I want to be numbered among the believers. Well, then don't be characterized by these things. Don't have these things in your life with which someone could say or you could say about yourself, that is completely the earthly idea of who I am. That's my pattern of life. Well, if that's true, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And I, 
I love this for true, genuine believers. Verse 7, In these you two once walked, peripateo, feet in front of the other, walking a pattern, walking a path. You once walked when you were living in them. That's characteristic language. You were living in them. That's the way you were. Verse 8, But now you must put them all away. And you say, wait a minute. I thought I was living in them. I thought I once walked in them. Why do I have to put the things away in which I once walked and in which I once lived? Why? Because they're remaining sin in you. How many of you, when you came to Christ, at that moment were was completely, totally new with no sin whatsoever? I'm, I'm sorry, I don't see a hand. Why? Because when we were born again in Christ, we were new, but not totally new. And when we die and go to glory, we'll be totally new, without sin, without the very power of sin and even the presence of sin. It'll be totally eradicated from our life. But until then, we battle it. And it is true that you once walked in these things and you once were living in them and in that life of yours and mine there are some of those things that hideously so still remain and I hate them and I don't like them and I want to be delivered from them. It's like Paul in Romans 7 and then he says the very thing he ought to say, verse 8, you must put them off like a pair of old dirty clothes. Put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his practices. And you have put on the new man. See, all the stuff that you used to practice, the stuff that you used to do, the stuff that used to characterize you, the stuff that you lived in characteristically, Those things are gone, but you have the vestige. And sometimes that vestige seems in and of itself overwhelming. I've heard it said, and I think it's absolutely true, the closer you come in your sanctification glory, the less sin that is there. But the less sin that is there is more heinous to you than ever before. The closer you get to Christ, the closer you get to the light, the more the light exposes the remaining sin, and the more remaining sin that's there, you think there's so much there. The light is exposing so many things. And you would say to yourself, well, look, I I see this list here, and I see anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk and lying, and I have to ask myself the question, does it characterize me? seems as though it does. Well, then maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you you haven't put on the new clothes at all. Maybe you haven't put on Christ. Maybe that's true. Maybe you've been playing church. Maybe you've been doing the things that make it look like you got new clothes on. And it may be that you bought some new clothes and you put them on the old ones. And guess what? doesn't fit. You've got to take the old clothes off. You have to put on Christ. Have you put on Christ? Have you put on Christ? 
There is no putting on Christ if there is no putting off of the works of darkness. If you haven't cast them off, if you're still living in them, if they're characteristic of who you are, if there's an unbroken pattern of sin in your life and there's no pattern of righteousness, then you haven't put on Christ. You say, how do I, how do I say no to it? Look at Romans 13. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You see, if you're, if you're truly a Christian, you're going to look at every provision that you make in your life, your eyes, your ears, your hands. That's the bodily part and your mind. And you're going to say, I'm not going to make a provision for this. I'm not going to provide the vehicle through my mind or through my body that gratifies its desires. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to say no to it. I'm going to run from it. I'm going to use that language of Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to put it to death. I'm going to kill it. I'm going to slay it. Why? Because I'm not characterized as a person of the flesh. For in a person's flesh, they cannot please God. Romans 8. I'm going to make no provision to gratify its desires. It's what Jesus did on that cross to deliver me from the very gratification of my desires from before. I don't want it. I want to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be baptized into Him. Have you, have you put on Christ? Oh, if you haven't, I, I urge you. I plead with you. One of the ways that you can know whether or not you've put on Christ is to look at your very life and ask, who's my master? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that the way I walk, endeavoring to please Him? Endeavoring the desires of the Spirit and not of the flesh. Oh, I bring you glad tidings of great joy that you can be, even today, delivered from the gratification of the flesh. Bow together with me. Oh, dear Father, Through me, we ask the question, is this your desire? Anyone sitting here, within the hearing of my voice, is your desire to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you making provision for the flesh to gratify its desire? You see, my friends, if you're forever and always gratifying the desires of the flesh, it means that you're in the flesh, you're of the flesh, and that you have no claim on the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, but if you're fighting to put off the things which are earthly in you, You are a person who has put on 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask Him for strength. Ask for the power of Christ through the Spirit of Christ to obey the Word of Christ for the glory of Christ. Ask Him to allow you to put to death what is earthly in you. That remaining sin that dogs you. You will be victorious. You will become what you are. Keep at it. Don't give up. Don't make provision even for the smallest, most infinitesimal degree of the flesh. It will wreak havoc in your life. It will make you a defeated Christian. And while it may not characterize you, it will it will divert you from the purity and simplicity of your devotion to Christ. Put on what is true about you. The character qualities of Christ. Look at His life. Study His words. Ask for His help. And He will give it. For those of you who cannot honestly answer the question of whether or not you've put on Christ, I pray for you. Pray for you, young people. Pray for those of you who are involved in gratifying the desires of the flesh and who have not put on Christ. May you put Him on today by confessing that He is the Lord Jesus Christ and that He did die, was buried, did rise from the dead so that you could be baptized into Him to put Him on, to be clothed with Christ. Oh, I pray that you would do so even today. Confess to Him that you have been your Lord Your desires have been those which gratified you supremely. Confess and ask Him to change you and to bring you out of the race of Adam under the headship of Christ. For His glory and honor we pray. Amen.